Hello, and welcome to the Vivolution podcast. Since starting in late 2016, Vivolution has been creating inspiring events for the plant-powered generation. Each episode of this podcast will share with you stories and ideas told by plant-based thought leaders from the Vivolution stage. Emma Sinclair is a serial entrepreneur and the youngest person to float a company on the London Stock Exchange, having done so at 29. Recently described as a tech head who will be running the universe one day, she is currently the co-founder of Enterprise Alumni. She is also a journalist and launched the Wonder Woman column in 2012 for the Daily Telegraph. Emma has been awarded an MBE for entrepreneurship by the Queen. This talk was recorded at the Vivolution Plant-Based Business Bootcamp in July 2018. Thank you. There's no microphone. Oh, there is now. Hi, everybody. I've got my glass of water. Thank you for the introduction, one I haven't heard before, but it sounds good. Um, I have been a vegan for a very, very, very long time, possibly longer than the age of some of the people in the room if I put my glasses on. So I have actually been traveling for work, but I came back especially for this because it gives me such immense pleasure to be at something where there's a community of people where either veganism or plant-based food or whatever it is that is your vibe, no judgment, these are vegan, but whatever you do is your thing. Um, you know, it gives me immense pleasure to be at something like this because I feel like there's a real tidal wave. Um, when I started eating, uh, well, I've been vegan a very long time. When I tell people I'm vegan, or until very recently, it was always I was always the weirdo in the room. To be honest, I am a weirdo, but for lots of other reasons, not being vegan. Anyway, um, the team have asked me to give you a short story about how I came to be where I am. Um, probably my bio, my bio was shared. I mean, I, I, I'm the youngest person in the world to float a company. I'm UNICEF's first business ambassador, um, and I've obviously got a software company. But I spend a lot of time poking around in vegan restaurants, places that sell vegan food, on a cardo looking at the new vegan products. Literally, I am that person. So I feel well suited to today. So I'm gonna tell you a short story about myself. Um, and then I'm looking forward, I think there's lots of people in the room, we're gonna hear about your businesses later. I'm looking forward to hearing about that. So I, I thought it was a bit topical, given that really this room is full of people who, in some way, shape or form, have some kind of commonality. I presume we either all eat plant-based or like plant-based or sell plant-based or something of that nature. So I thought really this, what's happened here is that Evolution have created a little bit of a tribe, um, a group of people who we all have something in common, whatever it is uh, that we don't have in common, we do all have some commonalities. So I thought that what I'd do is talk you through how I've got to where I am, although often I have no idea where that is, um, by telling you a little bit about my tribes. Um, so the first tribe, um, this is my dad. Um, I'm gonna tell you a short story about my career because when people hear that I'm the youngest person to IPO or float a company on the stock exchange in the world, it sounds extremely impressive, but really it is not because I was smart at school um, or I am notably more academic than anyone else. But um, the short story of how that came to be is essentially my father drove me to school every day of my life. So from three to 18, my dad took me to school every single morning. Um, and he tells me that I got bored of playing the what's the times table how many red cars can you see? What's the capital city? He said that I used to get bored of those games pretty quickly. He tried what's the temperature on arrival. Apparently that didn't work for me. Um, and various other games that you play with small children in the car. And apparently the one that I used to like the most was guess the share price. Um, I know you, so you can't make this stuff up. Um, so he used to, you know, I don't come from a family of much money, but my dad used to buy the Financial Times every day because he had a couple of hundred pounds worth of stocks and shares. And that's what he read on the way to work. 
So what started to happen on the way to work when I got in the car, um, and apparently, you know, the, of course, the Financial Times is quite a big newspaper. Um, I was much smaller than the actual newspaper when I started reading it. But what would happen was we'd get in the car every morning, and um, my dad would, excuse me, I've got something in my eye. It's quite awful timing. My dad would say to me, right, open at the stocks and shares price uh, page, which I would do. So I would open this newspaper. This is really quite inconvenient. It's one of the things that happens if you have long eyelashes. Um, we would get to the back of the car, I'd open the newspaper, and I would um, try and fold it and try and hold it upright, which is pretty difficult when you're three or four or five and you've got this massive newspaper with orange pages. And I would start to scan the page for the share price of the couple of stocks that he had. So, of course, we did this for a couple of years, and it was super fun as far as I was concerned, apparently. And we'd get in the car, and who would know? Would it be 26p or 27p? So, of course, what was happening from the age of three till about eight or nine was I started to just be intuitively familiar with the trajectory of a number of listed companies on the London Stock Exchange, as you do when you are a small child. Um, what, what then happened was, of course, I started to read. I started to get a little bit more curious. I wondered what all the other columns were. So for anybody that's ever looked at a share price, there's a bunch of other numbers that come with that. One is market cap, the value of the company, and then a bunch of other ratios that clever financial people pull together. And those are also in the newspaper. So what would then happen is I'd start to read the market cap. I'd start to read the ratios. My dad started to explain what the ratios were. And then we would start to discuss the share prices. And then apparently it got to kind of um, the end of my junior school. And on the back page of the Financial Times, there's a section still to this day called the Lex column. And that is where the kind of, it's kind of like the latest goss, but for the stock exchange, if you think about like what column you might turn to if you're reading something, is, is fit. It's on the back page and it's kind of the really big deals, the big mergers and acquisitions, uh, the big listings happening. It's where all the exciting stuff is listed. So we went from doing the share prices, reading the market cap, looking at the ratios, um, to the back page where I would also then read my dad, the Lex column. So fast forward to 18, and of course, my norm was the London Stock Exchange. There was nothing weird about it. There were no ivory towers. If anyone here is not very familiar with stocks and trading, and you're like, I have no idea what she's on about, that's most people. But for me, it was like the fun game I played with my dad. So I get to university. I've been working at McDonald's. Not hiss, but I mean, I only I was I was vegan at that point, so French fries were just about possible, and I didn't do salads at that time when I worked there. I'm working at McDonald's for like two years, get to university, swap to working in a bar, all bar one at the time, and it just wasn't enough money to sustain me. And when I started university, it was the first year that student loans were introduced, so I had this note under my door on day two of university saying, "Would you like fifteen hundred pounds?" And then it had a list of other questions underneath that were very compelling. Would you like to not pay it back until you're earning £25,000? Would you like it on very low interest compared to all these things? And I was thinking, yes, 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 I would. So I filled in the form. Obviously, I put on it that it was for books. Um, I took it to the student loan office. And about 10 days later, £1,500 was in my bank account, which for me was about just about the most amount of cash I'd ever seen in my bank account. Um, at the very same time, it turned out um, that... My parents had been squirreling away the birthday money that like, my grandma and my auntie had been giving me over the years. And um, that was all in a bank account. And it turns out that when you're 18, so long as you present your passport, even if it's not in your name, you can have legal access to your money. I found this out in the same week, and I took out £2,500 from that account uh, without telling my parents, obviously, and found myself with a couple of thousand pounds in my bank account, which was just, you know, was pretty exciting. But the obvious question for any 18-year-old who's been playing the stock exchange for 15 years, is, well, how am I going to build this into a lot of cash? Because this is all well and good, but, you know, my, my uh, 
think I was earning about £3.80 an hour or something from the bar, just wasn't enough. So um, I still read the FT every morning. I was the worst student you've ever met. Um, I was not terribly good at attending, or I was at doing my exams and used to get away with murder. I wasn't really into university. I was a little bit up late. We just, it was, I really fulfilled that whole university dream of not being very impressive, or at least for the first couple of years. But the one thing I did every morning on the way, well, every lunchtime on the way into, into uh, university, was I would buy the Financial Times, obviously, because that's what I read. Um, so um, I decided that it would be a great idea with my pot of cash to start trading shares. So um, when I was at university, you could only trade by telephone, pretty much, and it was a 10-day settlement. It's not like I didn't have an iPhone at university, which is showing my age. Um, so I decided, right, I'm going to start trading shares. Um, for anybody who eats out and never goes to Pizza Express, uh, they now have vegan cheese, it turns out. But uh, when I was eating pizza, they, I used to have a pizza with no cheese because there was no alternative. But I always knew, uh, and I've, I'm allergic to milk, so I have been, I've been dairy-free most of my life anyway. So um, I used to go to Pizza Express, and I used to know that they would make me a pizza with no salad, uh, with, no, with no cheese, and I knew I could get a few other bits and bobs. And when I was traveling around the country seeing my friends in the first couple of months of university, we didn't have a huge amount of cash, but my friends always let me choose where we ate because I was the vegan and the fussy one. And on top of that, we didn't have that much money, but you could go to Pizza Express, you could have a salad and a pizza and a Diet Coke for about £12, and you felt, I felt very grown up, and of course, could just about afford it. So I started to realize at this time that Pizza Express was, I thought, quite a good business. So I started my first trading, and my first trading was Pizza Express. It's no longer available on the Stock Exchange to buy. Obviously, if any of you have children, do not encourage them to do this. I'm just telling you my story. Um, but I started trading Pizza Express stock, and that was, I traded a few, but that was the one I traded the most over the course of my first year of university, my first eight months of university. I get to kind of, I think it was about May of my first year, everyone is talking about their summer holiday. They're gonna go home, they're gonna work, they've got a job in a pub, they're going to Mexico, they're going backpacking. I'm like, I'm gonna go work in the city. Obviously, I had no idea about uh, what that actually meant, but I've been reading the FT, I knew about stocks. So I wrote um, 10 letters, 10 cover letters that I sent to 10 companies, heads of HR of banks I'd heard of because I had been reading the FT all my life. Um, and I got 10 replies inviting me in for 10 interviews and I got 10 jobs. So, um, but if I think about it, if someone would behave like that and, told, and had written a, a note like that to me now, I would definitely also give them a job. But I got all these interviews and all these jobs and of course I'm like, oh my God, I can't take one of these summer jobs. They were offering, I still remember, 300 pounds a week. It was like, oh my God, that is the most money. And I get to work in the city, I get to wear a suit, I'm gonna be like one of those finance people. I found this quite exciting. Um, so I, um, I took two. I managed to convince one to let me start early and one to finish late. In the middle, I obviously had more money than I'd ever experienced in my life because I've been trading and worked in the city all summer. So I went and joined my friends who were backpacking around Mexico and had more cash than me. Um, and really, I would say that that is the entire start to my career. So if you think about it, I mean, I started, I left university. I mean, you know, my family um, originally are from Eastern Europe. Um, and, you know, I'm the first person in my family to go to university. I'm the first person... Um, who'd had a kind of semi-private education. And you know, if I think about what happened when I started work, because I went into 
mergers and acquisitions, obviously, and was the only person that was super excited to start and loved coming into work every day. Um, and, you know, if I think about why that felt accessible to me, because at university I didn't study economics, I didn't study maths or quantum physics, I studied modern languages. Um, it was just because it was just something that I loved and it was just something I did with my dad. So when I fast forward, left banking at about 27 and was planning my first business, I know that it's not normal, but of course, I thought it was complete... Now I realise it's not normal. At the time, I thought it was completely normal. Well, I'll just float a company on the London Stock Exchange because I need some cash. People like trading and backing companies that they believe in. It means that it's liquid, so you could buy £100 of stock in me and sell it next week. It seemed like the most obvious answer. So I went about finding out how to list a company. Um, it took until my early 30s to realise that this was not normal. And it took until my mid-30s to realise no one had done this before. Um, and to this day, I'm still waiting for a kind of 12-year-old Chinese genius to uh, undercut me. But still, no one has been crazy enough to think about doing that at 29. So really, um, you know, that's, um, that is slide number one, but the most important one of all, which is really a lot of my opportunities and a lot of the things that I've done have actually just been things that have been semi-intuitive. Um, things I've enjoyed, things that just seemed completely obvious to me when in fact they weren't really obvious to everybody else. So I think um, that's a short version of saying if you read my bio and it sounds remotely impressive, really it's just because I played a fun game in the car on the way to school and it happened to be very handy. So that's how I started my career and how I ended up um, IPOing a company. So I've been very fortunate also to, um, I very much believe in practicing what you preach. Um, and you know, and living by your own ethos. That's not a judgment on anyone else, but I like to live and act and perform and share in the, in the same way as, as sort of all of those things that I believe in. So I was very, very fortunate in um, 2012. UNICEF obviously have very famous ambassadors like David Beckham and Angelina Jolie and other people, of course, who I have absolutely no connection with and don't remotely resemble. Um, but they were thinking, how can we start to engage a completely different audience, which is the tech community, the business community. I was very fortunate to be um, their first business mentor, and I fronted a campaign at the time. It was funded by Barclays. It was £10 million, and it was to teach um, entrepreneurship skills to people in hard-to-reach places. This is... I haven't seen this picture for a while because I knocked this up quickly just for you guys, but this is a picture of Kenneth and his sister. Um, Kenneth is... Kenneth taught me a lot. When I was going on this trip, this is in eastern Zambia, and I remember thinking to myself, what is some chick who's IPO'd that lives in central London going to be able to offer anybody in terms of advice? And this trip taught me the universality of entrepreneurship. Whatever you're doing, we are all the same. Because I remember I met Kenneth, and he started off... I mean, he used to sell kind of um, charcoal by the roadside, which is what a lot of people do in a lot of countries in, um, in and across Africa. And it wasn't enough to feed his family. And he was given a, a loan, I think it was of like 18 pounds or something, the equivalent. And he started off with some seeds, planted a couple of... Um, tomatoes and peppers and at this point you can't see but behind here was about 25 fruit and vegetables he now had enough food to feed his whole family with a, a very diet and sell some and to the left is his sister who was inspired by what he did and these are all um, I think cabbages or lettuce and she was inspired to do the same and when I said to Kenneth you know we, we talked a lot and we talked about his business and when I asked him why he was working 19 hours a day which totally resonated with me but I thought you know, he's got enough food he's really achieved what he wanted to achieve he said to me that he wanted to give his children the opportunities he didn't have himself and send them to school. And if you ask my dad why he worked so hard, that is the exact same answer that he would give. You know, so really we are all the same, whatever we are doing. It just kind of has different scales and, and sometimes different geographies. But that was the beginning of, a, of an amazing um, journey I've had with UNICEF and I've been all over the world and been able to do 
really glorious things, um, hopefully to um, spread the little entrepreneurial seeds and um, leave a, a legacy of, of something beneficial um, in all the places that I've visited, which is really wonderful. Um, my next tribe, this is, this is, I've described this fondly as my girl gang. Everybody here has a scaling software business. These are all British entrepreneurs. I am uh, kneeling at the front. You can this is my best slide to name drop. That's Cheryl Sandberg in the middle. Um, and um, we went to visit her. I suppose it's appropriate that I'm kneeling in front of her altar. Um, we are all on a WhatsApp group as a result of this trip that we took some years ago on behalf of the British government to kind of demonstrate the best of British female founders. And um, this is an amazing support group for me. This is an amazing tribe that I've created um, with my girlfriends. Anybody need something? You need a lawyer, you need a document, you need some advice, you need access, you're having a bad hair day, whatever it is, you just put it in the group and someone always has a comment. It usually comes with an emoji and a love heart as well. So, um, you know, this is another sort of wonderful thing about tribes because we're all working mostly 18 hours a day, seven days a week. A lot of us have families and children and it's pretty intense and really kind of like what these guys are trying to do today with Vevolution, which is, um, you know, if you get a lot of people together who have similar goals and ambitions, um, if you create a community that, that kind of have, are like-minded and, and supportive, what it means is you can get to your goals faster. And I'm hoping that that's what today is the beginning of with this vegan pitch competition, which is for all these people who are already doing so amazingly, but have goals to scale globally or whatever else it is, maybe we can all help and maybe we can help by coming together. And that's kind of what that is for me. A couple more slides about my communities and, and then we'll wrap up. So this is, um, this is a group of Syrian teenagers in a refugee camp in Jordan. Jordan has 750,000 Syrian refugees. There are 50 million, actually I think the updated number is 60 million displaced children and teenagers in the world who are currently outside of education due to war, famine, and uh, things outside of their control. This is a visit I took last year. Um, it was 47 degrees uh, on that day in that building. Uh, we were all extremely hot, but extremely um, excitable. Last year was very fortunate. I, had con I conceived and launched UNICEF's first crowdfund, which is similar to what Crowdcube do, I think, who we're gonna hear from later. Um, really getting people together who can help. It occurred to me when I'd been on a trip with UNICEF that there are people who um, feel very strongly about small projects and would pop in a pound or two pounds or three pounds to solve a problem. So I launched UNICEF's first crowdfund last year in October um, to build an innovation lab in this refugee camp, Al-Azraq, in uh, Jordan. Essentially, these kids are out of school and I employ, I have a software company, will employ people with good skills wherever they are. Um, so the Innovation Lab is trialing teaching digital skills, so coding, design skills, to young people who don't have an education um, in the hope that they will be able to be meaningfully employed and have opportunities because they are likely to be stuck in these refugee camps for a very long time. So this, was, um, this brings back lovely memories and is a wonderful tribe of people. Um, other tribe, I mean, um, you gave me a, a, a sort of intro that I hadn't heard before, but it's true, I do write on the side, not as much as I used to, but um, this is the, if anybody's heard of Wonder Woman from the Telegraph, it was the first section um, for women that started in 2012. 2012 was obviously a big year for me. Um, and I was the founding business editor for um, that section, which was really glorious. And what that created was my first opportunity to write, to have a voice, to learn how to use my voice, because, um, you know, I, the kind of person wittering relaxed in front of you is not the person I was five or 10 or 15 years ago. Was, a lot of things I found intimidating. That was a really amazing experience. It taught me, it taught me um, how to articulate myself. It taught, I, I met really amazing people because I did a lot of interviews. I wrote twice a week. And it was the beginning of um, writing and television and radio, which is amazing because it's very important to have a platform and a voice 
whether it's for something like the fact that I believe in veganism or something to do with health or anything else that I feel strongly about. Um, two slides left. Um, if my co-founder was here, he'd be absolutely mortified. Um, this is um, my co-founder and I. So this is my penultimate tribe I'm going to show you. Um, my uh, sibling is actually my co-founder of my software company. He's an enterprise engineer. He heads our office in Los Angeles. He does not look like this these days, and I don't think I've seen him in a sailor suit since. But whenever I put pictures of us from business, it just looks so dull. So um, my dress sense has improved slightly, and so has his since then. But that is my co-founder. And finally, the most important person in my life, this is Grandma Rose, everybody. She will be 94 in about three weeks' time. I just left her today. Um, it turns out, and I didn't know this until recently, that I come from a long line of vegetarians and vegans, um, which, of course, is quite commonplace now, but it's less commonplace 50 years ago. This is, so Grandma Rose's mother was a lifetime vegetarian, and she was an Austrian refugee, an immigrant, and you just were not vegetarian in those days, so I've got no idea what prompted her. My grandma has been uh, vegetarian all her life. She's mid-chewing a bit of uh, sandwich, so excuse that, but it's the only picture I could find when I was sending you these. Um, and, um, and yeah, so she's been vegetarian for 93 years. And I've been, I mean, I've been vegetarian since, uh, since I was allowed to reject the food that my mother gave me, which was uh, pretty young, because um, I'm pretty willful, as you can probably tell. Um, so really, this is my final tribe. You guys are all my tribe. I'm really looking forward to hearing from whoever it is that's pitching later today. It's very exciting to be here, and I think it's very meaningful that um, plant-based food is being given um, a platform because I am very appreciative of it because I eat it all. Um, so thank you, everybody, for listening to my story. If you have any questions and you can't reach me today, I am very, very quick at answering on Twitter, worse at everything else because I get hundreds of emails. But um, anyway, this is Grandma Rose and I signing out. Thanks, everybody. It has been a few months since we launched this podcast, and, well... We want to hear from you, our listeners. Do you like the talk from our events format? Would you like to see more conversational pieces like roundtable discussions? If you have any suggestions, email damien at vvolution.co with your thoughts and ideas. As always, thanks for listening to this episode of the Vvolution podcast. If you enjoyed this talk, please leave us a favourable review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care and we'll look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you.